HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, everyone. This is Chaparivan, and today is quite a bizarre day. Today is goodbye. After 150 and plus episodes, after winning and being nominated for rather prestigious awards, I've decided that I would like to make a new project. I am extremely enthusiastic about inviting other voices to better understand what mezcal can be, to better understand the artisans that sustain these spirits and the ecosystems that enrich it. So this new project is going to be called Heritage Mezcal. It will be available in all of the platforms just as a Gabe road trip. It will also have an Instagram, a Facebook, and all of those things that we have to do. And Roy will be part of this. I cannot afford Roy. So if you guys have any idea of how can I get money to do that, I'll be nothing but grateful. For uh, the time being, I'll just be using my savings. On a more serious note, though, this was a grand time. I can't believe the amount of love that we received while doing this podcast. Even though I think it was rarely the occasion where we had a solid conclusion, I think people were nothing but grand to us. The amount of emails, the amount of texts, the amount of help that we received from you guys, you Agave Nerds, it's invaluable. So from deep of my heart, really thank you for this. And also to you, Homelu. It was, it was a great time, and I hope you kept on having fun. Uh, and that's all. See you on heritagemezcal.com, heritagemezcal, Instagram, all of those. Adiosito. I'm Jay. You're just Jay? <laughs> I mean, I go by I go by many names. I'm Jay. I go by Take. I'm Jay. I'm Jay West. I guess if we get into the first and the last name, but I uh, I don't have quite an explosive intro. Oh, that's okay. Uh, but just real quick, just to, to so there's some perspective for the listeners. You're you're Jay West. Take of of uh, whiskey raiders, of rum raiders, of tequila raiders, of Reddit. Uh, I do a little bit of everything. Cool. Okay. So I'm Lou Bank. <laughs> I'm Jay of everything. And this is Agave Road Trip, the critically acclaimed award-winning podcast that helps Green Gex bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. Very cool.
right? And so, you know, I got this assignment from uh, from my pals over at Inside Hook to write an article for the site. This will be like the fourth or fifth one I've done for them um, that uh, they specifically want me to write about the difference between tequila and mezcal. It's a tale as old as time. <laughs> yes, it is. And I feel like I've read that article a million times. I feel like I've I've actually written it a few times. I feel like I've recorded the episodes a few times. <laughs> right? And and it made me stop and, and think about these moments that I've had, right? Traveling through Mexico, oftentimes with Java, where we'll we'll be visiting this this palenquero, right? This this mezcalero, and the first thing they'll say, and this happens so frequently, Jay. The first thing that they'll say to us, uh, well, they'll ask us where we just came from, right? Like, what? Where? Where were you? Where'd you? And we'll n- name the community, and then that mezcalero will say, "Oh, well, the difference here is we don't use chemicals." Interesting. Right. And and I think it misses the more important, broader point, which is like what they're doing in these communities. I'm not comparing it to the community I was just in. Right. I'm comparing it to the things that I've had my entire life that have nothing to do with agave or rural Mexico that just absolutely blow me away about these communities. So I wanted you, Jay, to join me today to instead do an episode called The Difference Between Tequila and Whiskey. All right. I'm here for it. Let's do it. Okay. So what's the difference? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my favorite answer is the consultant answer, which is it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it does. But, you know, but like for me, the very first thing that strikes me when I think that, like the difference between tequila and, and whiskey, right, is... Well, first, tequila is an expression. It's a kind of an agave spirit. Right. Whereas whiskey is the entire category of spirit, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're looking at like a a varietal or, you know, like a subclass as opposed to like the whole class itself. But other than that, like, I mean, there are bigger differences. I mean, I guess tequila, tequila and whiskey – you know, a lot of people are going to ask, like, what kind of whiskey? Because the uh, the category is so broad. And oh, so, but that is what we're talking about. It's category versus expression. Right. Go. Right. See, this is what like this to me is the fascinating piece of it. Uh huh. So you know, the other night you and I were drinking, and uh, and one of the things you started talking about that that also scratched this itch in my head was about the we were drinking we were drinking a whiskey that utilized a um a barley variety a barley variety or multiple multiple varietals five different barleys five different barleys right that spoke to the biodiversity that i love so much in agave spirits and you know i compare that like people people talk about how precious and special and i'm you know i'm one of those people how precious and special agave spirits are and even tequila is but tequila Right, that's a monoculture. It yeah, it definitely is a monoculture. And people, as much as it's a monoculture, people definitely think it's more of a monoculture than it actually is. Well, what do you mean? Uh, like 
a lot of times I'll talk about agave with people and they'll say, oh, tequila's tequila and mezcal is so much more interesting because X, Y, Z. Um, and people will tend to write off tequila as like, oh, it all tastes the same, even though there's Blanco, Reposado or different producers in the Highlands and stuff. But folks love to think about tequila as a singular spirit. And then mezcal is like everything that tequila is not because it's diverse and it's incredible and it's handmade. Um, and we see that same diversity in whiskey as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like when, when you say that, my head goes back to, I don't know if it was in an episode or it was a webcast that we did, or maybe it was just when we were drinking together, but Java um, said to me once when I was belittling tequila, sure. um, right, <laughs> Java said the thing that he finds so fascinating about tequila is that unlike mezcal or agave spirits or whatever it comes from a it starts with a single ingredient which means you can do all of these side by sides that show it's kind of like the show i think chopped i think maybe it's chopped oh man i haven't seen food network and god I, was that Food Network? Or I was think, that a I, God, I, I don't, honestly don't know. I don't know that I've ever actually watched Chopped. Okay, okay. But, Tell me about Chopped. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you, uh, you know, I was on MasterChef, though. So I guess they also do this eventually on MasterChef. I never made it that far. Um, but um, where they have one ingredient and then each of the participants has to take – has to – uh, uh, do their take on it. Oh, sure. Build okay. a recipe around it. Right. And so same thing with tequila. And you get so many, uh, I mean, okay, there, there are communities in five different states where you can make tequila, but like 90% of it comes from Jalisco. And then you start like traipsing around Jalisco and you'll see that there's really like, I don't know, probably eight communities by and large where all that tequila comes from right so you you even have similar water sources and similar yeast and like all these similar conditions that can highlight can highlight um the skills uh and the i mean to, to say that one is more skilled than the other yeah i i think it also can highlight the different palettes of the tequileros who right. are playing with that single ingredient with that single process yeah, that's that's a fair appraisal. And like we see the same thing in whiskey too, where people say like, oh, it's made from grain. Like that's my favorite because you can make whiskey from really any grain. Um, but people say, well, it's just a spirit made from grain and then they move on. And like, well, there's a lot of grain in the world. There's a lot of like grain substitutes that people convince themselves into. So like obviously you have to make it from regular grain, but the world of whiskey between single malt and using barley and bourbon and corn and rye and even oats. And I had a phone call earlier with someone who's making rice whiskey. Uh, you, you definitely can't just call it a single ingredient. Oh, that's really interesting. Wait, a rice whiskey. Right. I haven't tried it yet. So uh, this, <laughs> we'll see how it is. But, you know, people people are, you know, taking that single ingredient and trying to use as many different similar uh, similar grains as they possibly can. Well, is that, is similar grains or different grains? Well, different it, grains. It, yeah, because like it sounds to me. God, I haven't even thought about that. So you've got obviously you got like a, a wheat, oat, rye, barley, um, uh, uh, corn. Right. Uh, amaranth? Is anyone using amaranth? Amaranth was used uh, over at Buffalo Trace. I want to say 2012, 2013, they released amaranth, grain of the gods. They took it and made it. They It, it was still a bourbon, so it was still 51% corn, but one of the flavoring grains was amaranth. Whoa, hang on. You just blew my mind. I thought that the, the whole thing about bourbon was that it there was a specific um, uh, uh, recipe that you had to follow in terms of grains. There is, but the only recipe you have to follow is 51% corn or more. 
everything. Oh. That's why uh, we talk about flavoring grains or the secondary grain. Or if you hear like the terms weeder or weeded bourbon, that means that it, to be a bourbon, it'll always be 51% corn. But that other 49% is where you get to be creative as long as you also use grain. Uh, so like a weeded bourbon is going to be mostly corn and then some wheat and then maybe rye, malted barley. But it's really common to see at least three grains in the mash bill um, and, and and different producers tinker with different percentages. And some producers have very specific mash bills and it's kind of their DNA, even though you can't copyright it or it's not a trade secret. But that's where the creativity kind of first starts with these producers is deciding once you've met 51% corn, uh, what do you do the other 49%? Or do you make it all corn? Or do you make it 80% corn? And that's, uh, that's, that's an early kind of indication of what people are going for in their whiskey. Oh, that's really interesting to me. So then as we're looking at the differences, it's funny, like we like we start this with the differences between tequila and whiskey, but you're, it feels to me like you're actually headed more towards the similarities between whiskey and agave spirits when you start talking about the, the, the diversity of species that you can use as an ingredient. Sure. But in tequila, like it all has to be blue agave, right? So there's there's no real recipe. The recipe is blue agave. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Well, 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 hang on a second, because that's not true. So it's true if uh, if what you are uh, making and bottling is labeled as 100% blue agave. Sure, okay. But if it's not, it's only 51% uh, blue agave and then 49%, much to the chagrin of a number of people I right. know, right? It can be 49% anything except another agave. Okay. And I, okay. I keep waiting for somebody to do like the, the so tall, <laughs> like, you know, 49% so tall, 51% blue Weber agave. Where's that? Right. And that'd be interesting to see how that gets labeled and received. But in, in the minds of most people, uh, you know, uh, tequila is, is blue Weber agave and then whiskey is just grains, which I think is hilarious because whiskey, you know, grain is such a, even when you go to a distillery and they say, this is where the corn comes in, you'd be like, what kind of corn? I'm like, I don't know. It's just corn, you know, but the, you can drill down even in that, in that regard. Like if you took hundred percent corn whiskey, I think that would be very similar to tequila. Cause like, you know, it's understood that it'd be hundred percent corn, but like what types are there different varietals? Is yeah. it all the same? And well, now I'm going down a rabbit hole, but you get it. Yeah, though, again, like that feels to me more like agave spirits right. than it does tequila. And I, I think I mentioned to you the other night, you know, my, my friend Tomas Navat uh, down in San Luis Potosi. He's making whiskey down there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's making whiskey, malting all these different varieties of corn. And there are a few different places in Mexico doing this. Um, but if, if I'm understanding you correctly, then those could qualify if they weren't in Mexico for certification as bourbon. Sure. Yeah. As long as it's made in the United States. So if you huh. uh, if you brought that corn north of the border and then started distilling, you could make a bourbon as long as you followed the other rules as well. But you'd have to get it certified as bourbon. No, you self-certify in the U.S. Like there's no regulatory board that's going to come and inspect it. But Really? Um, yeah, which is also interesting. You self-certify? Yeah, I mean, if you tell people it's bourbon, it, you know, you you obviously have to follow the rules. But there's no, you don't get investigated by the FDA or or the TTB or any of our regulatory bodies. Like they want to make sure you're storing it in a taxed and bonded facility. But uh, no one, if you do fifty point five percent or forty nine point nine percent corn, uh, no one's gonna immediately find out. Oh, that's really interesting. So. Um... 
And then if the other you know, 50% corn and uh, – did you say 50 or 51? 51. 51. 51% corn and then 49% rice, it still qualifies. Right. Yeah, that'd be fine. Huh. Corn syrup. Mm, you know, I don't know that we have precedent for that. Huh. That hasn't come across my desk. Huh. God, and here my head goes back to all the arguments about we need the certification in order to maintain the quality, in order to maintain the market for both tequila and mezcal. And here, like what you're telling me is that one of the, if I understand correctly, again, I wouldn't, you know, I'm hardly an expert in whiskey, let alone bourbon. Uh, But if I understand it, bourbon's really well received. People like to drink bourbon. People, (laughs) yeah, people are drinking more bourbon than they ever have, and they have year over year since I got into this. Yeah, bourbon's pretty popular. Huh. Okay, but to that point, God. So now my head goes to the discus reports, right? The 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 distilled spirits council of the United States, right? Their reports showing that. Everybody like went crazy thinking that somehow tequila was outselling whiskey in the U.S., and it's not. But it is outselling the category of American whiskey, which I believe includes bourbon. Right, yeah. So American whiskey is anything distilled in America. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that contains bourbon, that contains you know rye whiskey if it's made in the U.S. But uh, yeah, there's definitely some dexterity to interpreting their report because a lot of people thought that it meant tequila is taking over everything. And it's right. just taking over a subcategory of a very big category because it turns out Americans like scotch and Japanese whiskey a lot as well. <laughs> and Canadian. Don't forget the Canadians. Right. Crown With Royals the... pulling some real weight. Yeah. Is, isn't Fireball Canadian? Fireball, I believe, yeah. It's it's bottled here in the U.S., but it's it's Canadian neutral grain spirit, essentially, uh, in flavoring. Cross-cultural. If the bottles were from Mexico, that would be the North American spirit of choice. <laughs> or the cinnamon. Be. The cinnamon could come from Mexico. I Not to sidebar this, but uh, Fireball actually <laughs> released, and, and it and it really was an interesting story. They released a barrel aged version of Fireball, uh, which, if you know anything about whiskey, too, like whiskey has to spend some time being matured in a barrel to be called like a straight rye or bourbon. And there's some regulation around that too. But it made me realize in the moment that like Fireball's probably not actually barrel aged for really any period of time whatsoever. So Fireball released like a twenty dollar limited edition that was aged for a little bit longer and endorsed by Rob Riggle, which was just like the most <laughs> interesting period of of press release I'd ever seen on my desk. But yeah, weird things are happening in whiskey in the US. And it was okay. You know, it was the best flavored whiskey I'd ever had, which is the oh. biggest asterisk I've ever put on a piece of journalism ever. Like, <laughs> this was the best insert flavored whiskey ever. And, you know, but. So is there anything we haven't covered that you think is of great import when we're discussing the difference between tequila and whiskey? Right. Like we hit on it there for a second, but barrel aging is, is a huge part oh. of whiskey. And Very. I think it's, it's, it's a, big ish part of tequila because I, you know, you know, people who are a Blanca only, you know, those folks who are like, I believe that it's only, it's only good tequila if it's Blanco, like the barrel makes it, you know, tired and boring. And then you have people who will only drink Reposado or Añejo or, or you know, status choices who believe or, that yeah. XA is the only way. So yeah. I think there's, there's quite a lot there, you know, because whiskey's identity pretty much comes from the fact that it's aged. And I don't think that's quite as true in tequila. Yeah, no, fair enough. 
Fair enough. Yeah, you guys do a lot more. You guys. It's like we're, we're on teams, right? <laughs> good cop, bad cop. Yeah. Well, no. Good cop, good cop. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. What about like Cristalinos? You know, Cristalinos and tequila. Right. Yeah. Do, does anybody do that? I know they do it in rum in Puerto Rico. Do they do it with whiskey? We've seen one or two people... We've seen one or two people try it, but it's really interesting when you look at what people kind of appraise the value of tequila of is they want it to be clear. They want it to be Blanco. They don't want it to make their margarita look funny, which is what an Añejo does if you put it in a margarita. But in whiskey, everyone loves to talk about the color. They love to talk about the barrel aging. They want to tell you how old it is, like how rich it is, like, like, oh, look how dark it is. Like you can see like it's just been aged for so long because that's that's something that makes it desirable to a lot of people. And so... I think a lot of brands would remove the desirability of whiskey if they took that, I don't know, 20-year bourbon or that 10-year rye or that 15-year single malt and then made it clear again. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. No, that's a good point. It would contradict everything that the market expects. <laughs> right. Or just like what people think is valuable versus what is actually valuable. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, you know, and, and after my first trip down to Mexico, I was surprised by how few whiskeys they were making down there, given that it's, you know, it's the land of corn. It's the, it's literally, we are the the fifth people. We were, we were born when uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl followed the ant under the volcano in search of that corn kernel. Right. And then he grabbed and he planted it. And that's how, that's where we come from. Corn, t- t- tamales, uh, t- tacos, tortillas, like you name it. It's all corn down there. So where the hell is all the whiskey? I've always wondered that, too, because, like, there is a lot of corn in, in just Mexican culture, but there's been really, until recent years, there's really not been a lot of Mexican whiskey that makes it up here at all. Maybe it's because of the tortillas. Like, they're busy eating it. They don't right. have, right? They don't They don't have enough left over to make booze. And honestly, too, with, like, the state of agriculture in the U.S., and I come from a family of, like, corn farmers, so I can say this, but, like, here, I don't think the corn is probably as delicious as it is in Mexico. Like our corn is is good at being full of sugar. Yeah. But I don't know if that really makes like a really good corn tortilla. So I suspect you're probably uh, onto something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and certainly even once you start saying like good, that becomes a qualitative. And I will say that the corn that I've had down in Mexico, um, whatever you say about the quality of it, and I like it quite a bit, but whatever you say about the quality of it, there's a greater diversity of kinds of corn, right. which means a greater diversity of flavors and textures. Yeah, and, and I bet that that goes into making an interesting corn dish. Like like monolithic is definitely what I would call corn in the U.S. Like it's probably the strain of the year that everyone's making that has the most sugar, that grows the tallest. And, you know, it, a variety of flavor is good for everything. So if your one ingredient tastes the same and has no variability, it's probably pretty boring. Yeah, though, you, we're sitting here in Madison, Wisconsin, right? Ooh. And uh, my friends, uh, the Zapatas, they've got this tortilleria that they've started here where they're, they're I'm not sure if they're growing the corn or they've convinced local farmers sure. to grow this diversity of corns. And they, they make tortillas from them and they've got something like five, six, seven different varieties of corn. And you know, I was hanging out at one of the whiskey festivals um, uh, last year sometime and was talking to a distillery, and I don't know the name, but I'll bet you do, um, out of DeKalb, Illinois. DeKalb. Oh, uh, Whiskey Acres? That's it. Whiskey yeah. Acres. I was talking to the Whiskey Acre guys, and they were telling me about the blue corn that they grow once a year or once every two years uh, to make a special batch of their whiskey. Blue corn's really popular down in Texas, too. You've got True oh, Blue really? from Balcones. Yeah. 
yeah, so people definitely are capitalizing on the specific varieties of corn um, and even the varieties of wheat too. Like uh, I want to say Ben Holiday Distillery in Missouri like has a like a red wheat, you know, hey. that they use for flavoring and, and New Riff in Kentucky's done that as well. So people are definitely digging into the grain more and like a term you'll see if you look too is called heritage grain. Yeah, yeah, Like yeah. people look for older grains or grains that they've revived or brought back and, and are kind of looking at what that flavor is like. And they're not all good, but, you know, they're always interesting. <laughs> yeah. God, that's re- – yeah, no, I love that. In fact, I did a tasting uh, – I attended a tasting. Didn't lead it, but I attended a tasting – um, uh, last year, two years ago, three years ago, from a rye whiskey maker uh, up in Minnesota who was growing different varieties of uh, of rye, um, and then separating them for the 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 uh, malting, yeah, right. for the malting and the uh, the fermentation distillation, and it was really interesting to taste that different flavor of the different kinds of rye. But more than that, for me, it was just exciting to see. To see the focus on biodiversity. Right. Yeah, and biodiversity is really important because if we have one corn and it all goes away, yeah. like we require corn every year to make whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> and so if we if we if we lose a whole and, crop, dude. <laughs> and we we do other things with corn, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the state fair will be sad, but I'll be sadder because we won't yeah. have whiskey that year. And yeah. you know, or we won't be able to make a new batch of distillate that we'll put in barrels for a future year. But Biodiversity is is more important than it's ever been, uh, but it's also not really talked about as much as it should be. Because if the grain goes away, then the whiskey goes away. But do you feel like so? So why are they doing it? Right? There's there's got to be a reason that these whiskey producers are doing this. And I certainly I I see or hear I guess this conversation in Mexico about the importance of biodiversity. Right. Um. But is that is that amongst obviously with those individual producers it's important but do you see that as a conversation in the world of whiskey it's a conversation that's happening more than it's happened before and it's happening for two reasons and it's interesting like we we were talking we were drinking a westland product the other night and it's happening so good westland's out of the pacific northwest where they grow barley and a couple of years ago they almost lost an entire barley crop because everyone was using the same barley there's a big heat dome seattle sweated it was like 100 degrees for like 10 days wow and and that eliminated the lion's share of barley in the pacific northwest because they'd all use the same strains so that's like it's in the conversation for them for survival no yeah. barley equals no product but also on the other side uh, we see other producers talking about it because they want to stand out on the shelf. Like bourbon's more popular than it's ever been, which means there's more bourbon made than it's ever been, which means that if you're trying to make a buck, you have to stand out from your competitors and in, in pointing out like, hey, our bottle is super shiny and cool and different. And here's why you should buy it, because we're using this grain you've never heard of, like uh, like New Riff's Balboa rye. Like, hey, we found a, a rye that no one else has and we, we regrew it to a quantity that we can make a batch. Like that's a selling point. And so yeah. you kind of have to find the responsible line between survival and promotion, but people are definitely looking at heritage grains as a way to stand out or maybe be different or talk about their family's legacy if they've been producers for a long time. Uh, but it's it's talked about. People want to sell whiskey, whether they want to keep selling it or whether they want to sell more of it. And it, it's, it's a very popular talking point now, especially as people care where their products come from. God, you know, and I, I, I guess just to wrap it up, I I kind of wish that were the uh, the conversation around tequila too, right? Right. Like tequila used to be made from a variety of agaves, and it was only in I, w- I want to say it was 1973 or 74 um, where the regulations said no, no, Blue Weber and Blue Weber only. Sure. Um, and I, you know, it's it's funny. I think about the diversity of agaves in 
the broader category of mezcal and even broader category of agave spirits. Um, but all of that is dwarfed by tequila. Right. And it's crazy too, because, you know, if we lose a year of corn, like we just don't get whiskey for one year, but in, in yeah. agave spirits, like agave doesn't grow overnight or even in a single calendar year. And so I feel like sustainability has really been brought into that lens and right along with it, biodiversity, because it takes longer to get a mature agave. Yeah. And so you have to really be careful about your resources, whether you're in it for, for promotion or for survival or just for, for care of the land. Like that's a big component of a quick grain, you know, corn for whiskeys, a quick grain, like we can make it every year, but you can't churn out a, a full year's production worth of agave in a single year if you're not careful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good point. And I think a point to conclude on. I'm here for it. Okay. Thanks so much for joining me, Jay. I'll catch you later. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Agave Road Trip, the critically acclaimed award-winning podcast that helps Gring X bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. We're blessed with sound engineering by Roy Sierra and a theme song performed by Gabriel Oliveira and Marco Ricos. Sign up to become a road tripper and listen to more episodes at agaveroadtrip.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. And if you hated it, well, I'm sure you'll let us know that too. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Agave Road Trip. Agave Road Trip is a production of 10 Angry Pit Bulls, Inc. Agave Road Trip is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. To subscribe to the Heritage Radio Newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with Heritage Radio Network on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find Heritage Radio Network at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization using the power of education educational storytelling about food to build a more equitable, resilient food system. Heritage Radio Network couldn't do that without support from listeners like you. Become a part of the world's most innovative community today. Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please join the Heritage Radio Network family by becoming a member. To become a member of the Heritage Radio Network, click on the beating heart of our homepage. Heritage Radio Network can become addictive. Programming you hear on Heritage Radio Network might lead you to eat, drink, and listen to more programming on Heritage Radio Network. If you drink, please do not drink and drive. Drink responsibly. Drive responsibly. Eat responsibly, too. And listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly. To listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly, wear protective earbuds. While wearing protective earbuds, do not drive. Do not walk either. Sit in a comfortable chair. If that comfortable chair has a hard seat, please remember to stretch every 30 minutes. If you stretch every 30 minutes, please stay within your defined stretching capacity and consult a doctor who specializes in stretching. If you don't have a doctor, maybe Dr. Ryan Acock, the cocktail MD, can help you out. Thanks for listening. Agave Road Trip. Out.